What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience, the podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest, Sarah Spire, right? Spire? Spear, close. Spear, Sarah Spear. It's one of the two. Uh, and I know you as Follow the Poppy. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just throw it over to you to sort of explain why is that your name or why have you taken that on as sort of your Instagram uh, profile type person being? Yeah. So Follow the Poppy is a new platform and it's completely dedicated to opioid use disorder. And I came up with the name because I actually originally was going to make a film where I tracked opioids around the world and kind of the international system and everything stems from the poppy. So that's where the idea of follow the poppy came from. You know, something as beautiful as this flower is a global phenomenon and just wreaks havoc in people's lives. Um, So that's kind of the imagery and the idea behind follow the poppy. I actually used to work in film. So that's why I was going to make the documentary, but then life took some different turns and have just been working in the field and doing a lot of system work. And that's why I've just decided to start follow the poppy utilizing social media. I'm starting my own podcast also and nice. doing more research and program development um, on opioids. So that's, that's where that came from. Well, let's, let's delve into that a little deeper. If you don't mind, um, you've had some firsthand experience with some poppy type uh substances substances. so let if you don't mind let's say why you've taken an interest in this yeah i always say um that i'm an expert on two different levels first and foremost field experience uh i had quite an extensive heroin uh, addiction so you know i also was addicted to prescription pills which really kind of started before my heroin addiction, not so much opioids, but Xanax and Adderall, uh, you know, just really that pill culture. And I fell in love with a boy when I was young, Damn it. which I mean, it's always, it's either the girl or the boy. I mean, you work in the field, most addictions, it's, it's all in the brain. And so oftentimes we're addicted to people, places, things, you name it will form an attachment in our brain. And so mine really went together with an addiction to a man. And I don't even want to say a man, it was a boy. We were in high school. I was a good girl. He was a bad boy. And really that relationship ended up driving me into the world of heavy illegal substances. And so he went to prison um, for quite some time and really went to juvie, I was with him but I never did drugs when we were young. It was after I had been hired and worked in film. Um, I have like a crazy story and it goes in so many different ways, but I worked for the Cohen brothers um, and I worked on No Country for Old Men. I worked with Josh Brolin and his production company. And I I had this amazing film career very young at like 18. And so I come from female filmmakers. And so I was hired young with the Cohen brothers and um, Brad Pitt's makeup artist was my mentor. And so I used to do makeup for films. And while I got hired for No Country for Old Men, my boyfriend at the time was sent to prison. Finally, he had had his last probation violation and, you know, robbed somebody and big drama. And so he 
went into prison and that's when he was first introduced to shooting heroin was actually behind bars, which happens all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just not often talked about. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the drug culture in jail. Um, and so after two years, when he got out of prison, I went back to him and that's when my heroin addiction started. So we started with prescription pills and I actually started my opioid addiction to Suboxone first. Wow. Uh, so he could take Suboxone because at that time they, I mean, this was 12 years ago. Uh, they didn't test for Suboxone on drug panels back in the day. So a lot of people just coming out of prison, their opioid tolerance might be a little bit lower. So they'd use Suboxone and it wouldn't come up. So that's where it started. And then it quickly escalated to getting shot up with heroin. Mm. And that just changed my life forever. Um, I was extremely addicted to shooting drugs, like the aspect and the ritual of the needle. Um, and then I found cocaine and heroin together. So speedballs was really my poison. We have a lot like in common, a Sarah. Were <laughs> you a speedball junkie? Yes. And yep. Xanax, all three. That was kind of like the. Me too. It's like the trio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very dumb. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> one of the things you said about the, uh, you know, shooting up drugs in the prison, it's like definitely heard a lot of stories mm -hmm. like that. But what's even gnarlier is the the sharing of one needle for one unit and these like just crazy oh, yeah. syringes that are homemade and are passed around 50, 60 dudes a day. And it's almost like you're guaranteed to contract something just from just from using when it. When I did. Yeah. And that's part of my story. I mean, oh, talk wow. about consequences of using, I had every single one of them. So I contracted hepatitis C from, I ended up marrying him, um, from my ex and he had got hepatitis C in jail, right. in prison. And so I quickly, quickly within, you know, at first I tried to use my own needle, but you know, I mean, once you're that high, I mean, your brain, you're literally irrational. And that's Correct. the thing that I try and explain to people like, there's nothing rational about addiction. Your brain has changed on a fundamental level. So that went out the window and yeah, I, I contracted hepatitis C. So that was part of my story. It's very, very common. And, oh, yeah. and the other thing that you mentioned, and we've actually never approached it in a podcast, I'm glad you did, is the addiction to the ritual with the needle. Like I've seen many people where that's almost as much of the addiction as the actual drug. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were an IV user too, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, again, when you're looking at the brain, it's dopamine, dopamine and serotonin, especially if you're doing speed balls, which was really my poison. It, it sends like a thousand times more of a rush to your brain when you use a needle versus when you snort or take a pill, that release of dopamine in your brain is just, it's something that you can't even explain the rush that it gives you. But I mean, I would find myself like, I, I mean, I would try and shoot anything up. Like if I didn't have access to heroin or cocaine, I mean, like I like crazy stuff at one point, like I thought I could shoot alcohol. I mean, you know, like Xanax, Suboxone, anything I could shoot up. And by the end of my addiction, I was covered in track marks from my toes to my neck. And just I couldn't go anywhere without people just like staring at me in horror yeah. of, of what I looked like at that point. It was just so insane. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely gets 
pretty insane, you know. And one of one of the things I related to you, what you said with um, like knowing someone has hepatitis C, but getting high is just more important than the yeah. potential of contracting hepatitis C. And in yeah. my life, I shared a needle with somebody who had it a hundred percent, and I was just like, like you said, tried for like two, three weeks to avoid yeah. sharing needles or coming into contact with them and at one point you know there was only one and i was like f it doesn't matter luckily i somehow never got it i have no idea yeah. maybe she was like misdiagnosed or something like that but i can relate to just the you know does it does nothing matters you're just no, getting high nothing. is what matters and everything else can just be figured out later yeah, I mean, that shows like the level of insanity that oh, I yeah. would willingly get hepatitis to do forever. drugs. Yeah. Forever. Well, and actually, so that's part, you know, I have a happy ending on all, all accounts. I am now 100% hepatitis free. Congrats. Um, but I was when I was four years and I got really into health. That's what I mean, like health became just like a staple in my, my recovery and my journey, like food and hot yoga. Um, but I actually had, and like 22%, it's like 15 to 22%. Don't quote me on the actual statistics because I don't have them in front of me. But I had a spontaneous remission of my hepatitis. Wow. And no medication. Young, it just happened from clean living. Yep. A hundred percent. That's from amazing. Clean living and enough time, my body, it's a virus. I mean, and I so, and again, young females within that first who there's like a certain category where it is more common. Um, but no, I mean, I just actually ironically had, um, scans of my ultra, like an ultrasound of my liver done. Cause I have a new doctor and you know, people get really wigged out when I, when you say <laughs> when that, I Oh, I had hepatitis, but I don't anymore. It's no big deal. Doc. Oh God. Yeah. And then I, I mean, I had hepatitis. I had a contracted gallbladder. I had superior mesonomic artery syndrome just basically like your arteries collapse on. So she was like, we should probably scan your organs just to <laughs> look your back whole body, that. like top to bottom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I was loud. I mean, 12 years later, but so everything is still great. And I'm, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm so blessed, like on all accounts, just to be sober. I mean, you and I, we, we don't live, people don't live through speed balls. Right. A lot of them, you know, I True. mean, it's just and Xanax, you, those, that combo is a death sentence, yeah, you know, and then on top of it to be totally healthy, you know, I'm lucky. Well, I, I don't know if it's lucky, but you put in the work and you did all the yes. things right. As far as like, not just getting sober, you got healthy and you put in yeah. all that work because I think yeah. that is a big part of why you were able to hit that spontaneous remission. If you'd just gotten yeah. sober and kept smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and living that lifestyle, yep. I don't know that that would have happened. No, I probably wouldn't. But honestly, like I am lucky in the sense if I had a mom who helped me yeah and really like that's part of my story is like i had a champion and a caregiver and a cheerleader because i was so broken at first that like actually when i first did get sober i remember i mean that early early sobriety i smoked a pack a day and ate taco bell and you, you know didn't have a car and was living in a sober living and was extremely unhealthy and my mom's the one who actually found me because i i died i mean she found me and i went into a vegetable state coma um, and I actually like had 
grand mal seizures and was hospitalized and they thought that I was going to have brain damage for the rest of my life. And that's when they discovered the myriad of health issues I had. How, I, had how long, every I don't mean to interrupt you, but how long were you dead for? Do you think how long before she Not, found you? I, when I say I died, I didn't legally die. Um, but I mean, I, I, I was about to die. Right. Like I right. had the fibrillator and they shot me up with adrenaline in the ambulance, but I was in yeah. like all uh, like a stroke, like, vegetable state coma for three days oh solid gosh. from an and overdose my, i'm assuming yeah yeah, yeah from gotcha. an overdose gotcha um and they thought i was gonna have brain damage and i was having the grand mal seizures and so they stopped me from dying Jeez. um so and, intense yeah and, and i mean it was horrible and horrible for your mom to find that i mean luckily she uh, did and she was able to jump to and do the right thing but I can only yeah. imagine, and I'm sure now you can as a parent as well, like what, what that was like. Horror. Yeah. Horror. I mean, and my mom and I have like just the best bond. I mean, we're like two, you know, peas in a pod and we've always been really close and, you know, I'll never forget her sitting there. Cause I was completely conscious. That's the other weird thing. Like I was a hundred percent with it through all of it. Wow. I could not speak. All I could do is like move my eyes big. I mean, my hands were curled. My mouth was like this. Yeah. And, but I just was watching my mom and she just would not let go of me. And she just kept telling me like, today is not the day you're going to die. Like you are not going to die today. This is not how our story ends. And it, it carried me through. I mean, it makes me want to cry today. Yeah, like, I'd imagine. And she did that every single day for like the first year of my recovery and sobriety every day. She was like, you're, Cause I went to treatment for a year. Like I was not lucky. <laughs> yeah, I would. That's what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. I was not getting sober, and <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> I was, you know, coming out of medical detox and pissed and angry yeah. and wanted to die every day. I mean, I was so messed up. But through my mom, and then you're right, Andrew. Through hard work and years, years of work i then found that advocacy in myself and was able to really start to design the life that i wanted to live i imagine a big part of that too besides just getting your body healthy was detaching from that toxic relationship which was just oh, was gonna you know bring you back down time and time again yep yeah and that's why i i was gone for i mean i never went home but i was gone for a year and again my mom knew i mean she knew if i had just went to rehab and gone home, I would be dead. Right. I'd be dead. Yeah. Well, I think a, an important point you you we touched on in the very beginning, and you're right, we do see it all the time. Uh, it's a big prevention of people getting in, but we see, I think, a big one of the biggest causes of relapse is over, uh, you know, an attachment to a significant other. Every single time, it's like that's what does people in. That's the one thing they they want to numb out or can't control or it just. Yeah bring so many emotions that people don't know how to deal with those emotions. And so they want to numb it out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you have to change everything. Like fortunately and unfortunately, like you have to change everything, you know? And so if they're, and I've seen maybe one person who had like a toxic relationship and they had a happy ending. And I say one, cause it's literally the only person I've seen have it work. The so unicorn. I don't want to give people false notes, <laughs> but <laughs> one time I've seen it work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I could probably count the the times on my hands that I've seen it be successful too. And I'm like, damn, 
there it goes against like the narrative I have of it not working. But one thing I wanted to say yep. that I thought was uh, a cool correlate like to what you said was like, I feel lucky to have not died. Like I know I yep. got sober because of like the hard work and kind of the same thing that you were saying, but I almost feel like I, I work harder because I got so lucky to not die. Yeah. Like I was just 100%. graced to keep somehow, right? Like what you said, people that do these types of drugs, it's, you don't have a long life expectancy. You don't know no. 50 year old speedballer peoples, you know? So it's no. like, I felt the same with you where it was, I was very lucky to get through that period of my life. And the reason I'm sober today and work so hard is because I don't know how the hell I'm still here. Yeah, I totally really, I was thinking about that the other day and I don't know, I don't know you, but I would assume you're probably a slight overachiever as well. And there's, um, there's almost that, like, I don't want to call it survivor's guilt, but there is, it's almost yeah, like, oh my bit. God, I live. Like I better do something with this second chance and like go all the way. And, and it's that same propensity of like, I'm going to go all the way with the drugs. <laughs> with shooting heroin, cocaine. But it's true. It's like using that. Right. Yeah, so skill. then, and that's what it's a skill. You channel it. It's like, you have to channel the insanity and the oomph, whether it's good or bad somewhere. Um, but I find that those of us who share that tend to be overachievers in sobriety, which was why I also am incredibly, um, passionate about mental health for people in recovery as yeah. well. You know, I mean, I think it's so important that we all then take, continue to take care of ourselves oh, yeah. and our mental well-being. Yeah. Well, I think the addiction leaves your mental health in a state of confusion, Shamble. you know, or yeah. it's just like, uh, like a mental emergency is what you're left with, you know? Yeah. So it's like, well, I mean, it's not to interrupt, but like, this is addiction is actually like in the DSM five manual, like a mental illness. Right. Right. You know, I mean, like it legitimately is a mental health disorder that we yeah. struggle for, you know, and then you talk about the chemicals, like this is what I always, you know, especially when we're looking at designing programs or talking with families or youth, it, it can take two years for your brain to even start to like stabilize just mm -hmm. from a chemical perspective. I mean, it's like, we've got to also understand that aspect of what we're dealing with from that mental health perspective. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I think the self-love and the practicing of patience and acceptance of part of the process, because I think a lot of people get sober and they think, okay, cool. Now I'm sober. Like I should be achieving all these things. And it is a, it is a process and it takes work and it takes time and it takes persistence. And a lot of people give up before they get to that point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't, I think a lot of people also don't get the help that they need once they get sober too. You know, it's yeah. like drugs and alcohols. Usually we do drugs and alcohol to numb other issues, you know, or to compensate for like an actual mental health illness, which is different than a mental health condition or the relationship issues, early childhood trauma. I mean, we're learning so much more. So Again, I think once people get sober, like that's a lot of the time when like the real work yeah. actually comes in. Yeah, Cause you can get people step. off drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Like that's hard, but it's actually the easier part yeah. than helping people maintain sobriety and recovery. <laughs> yeah, I definitely always kind of say abstinence is just the first step. 
to seeing what you yeah. need to fix, what's really there, you know, kind of like what you were saying. And yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people, maybe they don't get the right help, but I also mm. feel like it's, people don't really know everyone's different. You know, I, yeah. I rest one thing that I know that's true from being a counselor for the last seven years. It's like, everybody's different, yeah. you know, and it's yeah. like some people just don't know how to give the best advice for every person. And I think yep. a lot of treatment and counselors and people in the field and people in the, the rooms, they think like they just project what works for them. They just it's, project I, what they're right? like. It'd just be like if I got a microphone and said, this is how you get sober. And it was just my yep. life story. And that's not going to yep. work for everybody. And so I think that's like a big issue I see. A hundred thousand percent. And I think like talk about, because I'm pa obviously passionate about systems. We design you as a, we design entire systems off of a one, one idea approach. One you model, know? And, yeah. And even, <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, you know, it's like, it's a hundred percent correct. I mean, I, and I love, I got sober in the rooms. I always say that, but I also am no longer in the rooms. Right. I also say that. You know what I mean? I also became an international drug treatment researcher. And I I think that there are just, there are some benefits and there are some cons and that's in all things. But, yes. you know, I love hearing that because it's so true. It's like, just because, you know, I did these certain things does not mean that the person who had, you know, a very abusive childhood who was raped, you know, that's going to work for her. Yeah. You know, I mean, she has a whole different set of circumstances than maybe I did. Um, yeah, I think that's partly why our program is so successful, because so much of it is done in a curriculum form where it just poses different questions, scenarios, digs deep, where the person is finding their own answers, as opposed yep. to somebody telling them what they think their problem is or your problems like my problem. I get you. It, it means so much more. And it's such a more lasting thing when the person can find it within themselves, because like Dallas is saying, every single person is different. My why is not your why is not his why. And uh, okay. this allows people to really explore what their why is and then be causative over that. Well, and then it empowers them. Right. You know, I mean, that's exactly right. It like gives them some sense of agency over their life because ultimately choices matter, as we all know. And if we can teach people how to make better choices for their circumstances, then yeah, it's 100%. Um, no, I love that. We've done a lot of the work that, we've been focusing on and I've looked at is a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. Like that's really where, especially with youth and the population, we serve high Medicaid clients, mm -hmm. um, you know, the low income intergenerational poverty abuse. And so my interest over this last couple of years with a lot of the work that I've done has really started to look at like, how do we create trauma focused and informed programs to also start to address that, which is positive and negative. Cause yeah. then you also know you open up people's trauma and you start doing like trauma intensive work and that has its, that has its own list of things. Well. Yeah. And I imagine like one of the most difficult parts is, um, is, is allowing them to experience and go through the trauma, but not be a victim of it so that they can actually be causative over their future, as opposed to 
you know, carrying this thing around yeah. with them and saying, oh, I can't I can't be responsible for that because look at this trauma that I went through. I, yeah. I can't do that because of this trauma. So it's like yeah. also a very fine line of allowing them to address their trauma, but then not be victimized by it or you to yeah. use it. Yeah, and process it. And, you know, the emotions and behaviors that associate with trauma. Right. Which is like acting out. You know, I mean, it's especially when you look at the adolescent population, it's a lot of feelings, a lot of, I mean, adults. <laughs> a lot of hormones. Too, you amplify it yeah. and it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I remember those days back in our early days, we used to bring juveniles in and it was, uh, uh, I mean, it was uh, very rewarding, but it was also, it's it's a unique population, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, I've worked with adults and juveniles. Adults are a lot easier. Yeah. I, I mean, bet. until they act like kids and then, and then it's not, but... <laughs> But you can still talk to them like as an adult, like kids. You, yeah, I don't want to say you have to have kid gloves, but you got to like try to meet them where they're at, which is harder when you're an adult. I know well, it's hard to meet irrationality. Like it's just a, a hard thing to manage or be yeah. with because it doesn't. It's just random. It doesn't make sense, at least to yeah. us. And it's just a a difficult spot to be in, right? When you say the which is like. You can go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. Oh, I was You're just saying, which I is was, a as a whole. Like yeah. it's irrational. Yeah, it's like how, what do you what do you do with irrationality? Right. You know, like, there's, there's no reasoning with it. Yeah. No. <laughs> so it's like okay, right on. What else? You know. <laughs> exactly. So Sarah, so I was going to ask, how did you get into the like treatment research? And is that what you said? It was like treatment research or yeah. what? So what yeah. were you researching? How did you get into that? What does that look like now? Well, so I ended up going back to school. That's like part of my recovery story. Like I there said, I go. worked in film. So I worked in film and I got sober in LA and I, I realized really quickly, like, uh, there's no way I can be in that scene. <laughs> like there's just, I was not going to make it. And yeah. and I wasn't even that like my addiction, you know, it's like stages of addiction. And I was, I've always been, it's like genetically I'm predisposed and I have that like intensity to use whatever it is good or bad. So I was like a binger especially with alcohol and pills when I worked in film, but I just knew too much of what entails in that world. Right. And so really after that, like year or two years of my first early recovery, once I literally felt sane again, like it took me, I remember talking to my mom for a good, almost two years saying like, I feel better, but am I ever going to feel normal? Right. Like, am I ever going to feel normal? I just, ugh, I'll never forget that feeling. So once I started to feel more normal and like my brain literally started to even itself out and going through all the different treatments that I went through, let me just, we could have an entire <laughs> other series of podcasts covering those. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I was so horrified by a lot of what I did see. And then I was also so interested in in the brain really yeah so when i went back to school i was just like taking just regular classes at first and then i met a professor who just like revolutionized and changed my life and he was the dean of an international political science school and that's when i entered into political science and it's a soft science but what it allowed me to do was like tailor my research and my education to look at the larger system that I had been a part of mm -hmm. and to study it more from that constructivist, like 
bigger view perspective. And so what my thesis and my research really centered on was the international opioid uh, drug treatment system and the socio the socioeconomic development behind that. So really looking at like how do societies create institutions and programs? How does it how's it funded? Yeah. What are the outcomes? And I mean, I've studied everything from like the geopolitical war in Afghanistan and Pakistan's on opioids to harm reductions in the Netherlands to decriminalization in Portugal to the United States politics uh, yeah. and evolution and war on drugs. So I really became like a hardcore researcher. That's amazing. And one thing you said when we did our, our YouTube special together, but I think it's important for people to understand following the fentanyl. I'm just sort of yeah. going to shift gears because a lot of people are like, how did it get here? Why is it here? What What's this new drug? And, and you... Uh, it's been around. Yeah. Specifically lay it out in terms that I, you know, 100% believe as well. Yeah. I mean, when you look at fentanyl, right, it's, it's in the class of opioids and fentanyl was actually created in the early 1960s to be one of, to be the most powerful opioid on the planet. Yep. It was designed with that philosophy and it was during that era when pain management was first kind of developing from like a pharmaceutical and pharmacological perspective for cancer patients, particularly, mm -hmm. and for people with really intense pain. And then it was like, you know, we all have heard the story of Oxycontin at this point. It's like fentanyl's its bigger, scarier cousin that's just kind of been like waiting in the background because it was originally formulated as a patch or as lollipops. I mean, if you were in the drug scene every once in a while, like back in the day when I did, you could get like a fentanyl lollipop or a patch. Right. Yeah. Well, it was also utilized for like operations or surgeries, right? Oh, for to totally. knock it you out or help. Massive yeah. surgery, cancer, yeah. pain management. You know, and so it wasn't really though pushed the way Oxycontin was at first, but what has happened now, especially with the rise, it's like everything affects everything. So the rise in the manufacturers and the shutdown of Oxycontin, especially the international scene in China and Afghanistan and the Mexican cartels have figured out that they can actually start manufacturing fentanyl. And so that is where the majority of the United States fentanyl is coming from is an international drug trade that has taken over that's almost mimicking like the Oxycontin. It's just not like a pharmaceutical company one behind it, mm -hmm. but it's that, you know, it's the market. It's like picking up the supply and demand. Right. Just and, so, the shoes. and it's 100 percent synthetic. So we're not relying on them like, you know, mining these poppy fields. They're just. It. Yeah. Yes. And that's exactly right. What I brought is so, you know, even with like pharmaceutical companies own poppy fields all over the world. Right. Like they have, especially in Turkey and in Australia and Tasmania. But fentanyl is 100 percent synthetic. We can make it in. It's like meth. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. meth. You can make it in you your car. It. <laughs> yeah, you can make it. And so it's an unlimited supply and it's like unlimited revenue. And now they're also utilizing social media. And that's one of like the scariest trends is the ease of which kids and people can get their hands on fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And they literally can get it on TikTok and Snapchat. And it's sent from China. The Mexican cartel is coming in. And even like Afghanistan, the Taliban, which controlled 90% of the world's opium, 
and was really one of the drivers behind the heroin crisis, they are now starting to manufacture fentanyl as one of the driving revenue sources. So, you know, and the other thing that we talked about, which a lot of people need to be really careful. And this is, I mean, I said a comment that was like shocking, but I'm going to say it again. It's like, know where you get your drugs if you're doing them. Yeah. Because people, if you're buying random drugs, even if it's like cocaine or it's weed, people are yeah, they're lacing it with fentanyl. And then you have tons of kids and people dying. I mean, right now, fentanyl, fentanyl, not even just like all classes of opioids, but fentanyl is the leading cause of death in the United States for 18 to 45 year olds. Yeah. Like 100%. It's shocking. They just posted some on the news saying it was more, it's killed more, which is nice to see it get some coverage like that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a yeah. little bit of coverage, but it's like, yeah, man, the fentanyl is killing more people than COVID, than cancer, than suicide. Yeah. Like all, yeah, all of cause. those, the leading cause. Like, but they yeah. have to put it into like, categories that normal people understand more than suicides yeah. more than cancer more yep. than covid every yep. year right so yep. why aren't we talking about it more come on because it's yeah. a billion dollar industry yeah it's a billion dollar industry and it's also like the united states is not even controlling the billion dollar industry you know i mean this is really it's like they are in some levels but also like the international market of mm. it and i just don't think we have not put enough attention into a systematic actual way to treat addiction and policy and we start policies and then we don't have the infrastructure to actually carry Support them it. out how they are done um and i'm i'm watching that in washington state i mean we could get into so many different topics but like portugal decriminalized drugs right in 2000 they had a heroin addiction one percent of their entire population which doesn't sound like a lot but is astronomical like one of the worst and decriminalization was extremely successful but it's because they had massive infrastructure and a lot of treatment centers and that like literally if you get arrested for drugs you have like a case manager a psychologist a lawyer and you go off to treatment and they do a whole combination they've yeah, got a lot awesome. of harm reduction i know it's great but then we have decriminal we're like decriminalizing drugs now starting in some states like oregon and washington which in theory i thought i was going to be really excited about but in practice what i'm actually seeing is now we don't have that support system to go with it right. <laughs> so what we're going to happen is have a lot more crime a lot more dead people because yep. we don't have really any i mean we're we don't have safe needles yeah, we don't have a whole lot of harm reduction, which again, it's like, huh. but from a from a life saving perspective, right? And when with massive policy, and then we don't fund treatment centers, and we have really crappy reimbursement rates and short coverage, even if you do have commercial pairs, yep. like we don't have the system to support a lot of this a lot of change 100 uh, yeah. in fact it just keeps getting worse and worse with the insurance companies and trying oh, to drop levels of care and it's like oh you've been sober two it, days you can go to outpatient get on your suboxone you're fine it's I crazy use, oh yeah insurance if we want to do like if we want to like end the war on drugs like we need to start a war on insurance yeah. right. in this country because like that really is where 
where we need to make change and have a lot of political action is is the insurance company. I think it's the biggest barrier. It's like all signs point to insurance type of thing. It just always leads yeah. its way back into money and insurance yeah. has all the money and they're the ones paying and they don't for the pay services you. and right. care. Well, and, and they're in bed with the pharmaceutical company. So they're always going to yeah. be like, you don't need treatment. You just need to be on this medication. Yeah. See, you're fixed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with fentanyl, you know, again, I've done a lot of research, like in some cases with fentanyl, like harm reduction is good, but it's never, and I'm, I mean, I'm going to say this, like I, there's not a lot of studies that show harm reduction on its own right? Like just methadone or just the box. And like, it's always better if somebody has a therapeutic component oh, yeah. with that type of treatment, you know, it's like, again, and I had to get over, I had some biases, like suboxone's what introduced me to heroin. Like, so I therefore was like at first anti-suboxone mm -hmm. and I can own that and being just in the 12 step now, after doing some research and working with addiction medicine doctors, like I can see the benefit, but I'm still going to always like be a supporter of that whole person approach mm -hmm. to make sure that you're also meeting the psychological and other elements that go along with it for success. Well, 100% or else they're just going to end up on such high amounts of Suboxone because they haven't done anything to handle their addiction. They're just switching it to a pill. Yeah. And then they like come to us and we're like... I don't even know if we can get this person off of this in 60 days. You They're at such can't. a high dose. It's crazy. You can't. It takes six weeks. Yeah. I doubt. I mean, I don't know if you guys actually do do medical detox for Suboxone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that is, I mean, that's good to know, actually, because I've had people who, you know, because I know there's some places in Florida. So you actually do like full Suboxone medical detox? Yeah, I mean, they're not going that we they also do the program. It's not just a medical yeah. detox. Like the program is mandatory. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Yes. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, methadone you have to. too, but I think it's kind of more of a, a hit or miss. It's like more of a let's have a conversation because yeah. that could take yeah. way that too could take long. a long time. And yeah, yes. both of them. Yes. They're, yeah. But Suboxone is yeah, far I mean, more uh, prevalent. You mm -hmm. know, people coming in on 24 yeah. milligrams of Suboxone, you're like, dude. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, you know, we're also in California, so there's laws about, you know, if they want to be on it, you got to let them be on it and, you know, yeah. that sort the of thing. The thing that makes me worried with that um, is like the lack of long-term studies too, right? It's like a lot of the studies were short-term. Like I think Suboxone, when used as like what it was actually designed for is, is great. Yeah. Like a short-term detox agent that like makes it so you don't feel like feel keyword feel unless you're on xanax like us or heavy alcohol like you're yeah like then in medical detox but opioids you're not going to die unless it's methadone then you are going to die if you get detoxed off of it like methadone does kill you but i think suboxone as a short-term detox to get from point a to point b but we have now it's like being prescribed for years. Yeah. I just don't, it, it'll be interesting. And I don't, I don't like to, to use the word interesting, but it's like health outcomes and what it does to the brain for such prolonged uses. Have you guys looked at a lot of the stuff that's happening with like Ibogaine and some of the other clinical research with um, psychedelics? Uh, yes like, and no. I mean, yeah. I'm familiar but I would, I, I could never have said I've researched it probably like you have or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Familiar yeah, though. Yes. 
it's interesting what is starting to happen because at the same time, and I know we're supposed to be talking about fentanyl, but I just, oh, no, say we're, we're, we can talk about everything <laughs> gone on, but right in 2001, when Suboxone um, was really starting to go through like FDA approval, Ibogaine was also, and there's um, a lot of like neuroscientists, but Ibogaine blocks opioid receptors in the brain. Mm. It's like a very powerful hallucinogenic, but it literally stops like detox the moment you take it. And then now, you trip out. People <laughs> trip hard. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. And I will tell you, I have seen one of the craziest things I've done is I actually and I've not done anything with the footage. And one day when I actually have time, I will. But like I film, I did a documentary of filming someone's like underground journey. Oh, wow. man. Where'd you go? Canada or Mexico? <laughs> no, it was a dealer in Portland. And you got, okay. Oh, and, shit. Okay. okay. No, it ended up. So again, I just filmed it. I did not participate. <laughs> I had releases. <laughs> but I, it was interesting because this, this individual's journey, he had been a heroin addict, an opioid addict for 15 years and had literally done absolutely everything. And like the, and had tried to hang himself like 15 times, was at his Suboxone, Methadone, 12 step, which he had always had the most success in like an abstinence space, but just couldn't maintain it. He went on this like desperate journey to get Ibogaine and he ended up finding it. Um, and, and taking it. And it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And I would never recommend to do this ever, ever, ever like unsupervised. It's extremely dangerous, but he did. It was interesting to see that the detox symptoms stopped really? immediately. Wow. And then there was the heavy hallucinogenics, but like some of the insights. And then afterwards he's been sober um, and has a baby and it's been five years now. Wow. Um, and it like helped give some like spiritual insights, but the science behind it is, is interesting. And so it's back now, Suboxone kind of outdid, got its foothold in the FDA process as a pharmaceutical, because it's a lot easier to manufacture and make yeah. and produce than Ibogaine was, but they were both trying to go through the stage three trials around the same time. And now it's kind of coming back. So it'll be interesting to see like where mm, that goes. some of this goes future yeah yeah i mean we've seen and we've even done episodes on it it's becoming very common now for people to be either microdosing or utilizing yeah. ayahuasca or just different methods to sort of reach that um spiritual breakthrough that they're searching for or looking for but you know it, it, like with any drug it, it can become a slippery slope you know where that oh, just well, like now I you're mean, living I'm, for that i'm not gonna do it like <laughs> You know, after this much of sobriety, what interests me in some of those things is the is again, it's like the neuroscience of like what does it actually do? Mm -hmm. So much of what we do, we think is one thing, but ends up being like like really the neurology of our brains, right? It's like the dopamine that we chase. It's like exercise. That's one of the best. Like you, I know you talk talk about dopamine and a like a brain enhancer it's like no wonder a lot of us do go towards fitness and it's the same thing with chasing that spiritual high and i am a spiritual person but i also believe in science and like that neuroscience right. i'm excited for the field to go more in the brain and the actual chemical imbalances and start to really look at some of that. And I think we'll we'll see more breakthroughs yeah. like in the next 10 years. And I would love to see, you know, like uh, true mindfulness, you know, people like yeah. getting calm and, and creating that space 
and having scientific studies on that because you know we see that in practice all the time and how yep. beneficial it is they're starting so yeah. like actually some medical schools like even in washington state one of the things i've been a part of is the medicaid transformation but it's integrating physical behavioral um and substance use disorder but there are like wsu and there are a lot of medical schools and nursing schools that are studying like the actual benefits of mindfulness and they're redoing a lot of their curriculum wow like awesome. they're actually starting to look at like the biopsychosocial and spiritual component mm -hmm. and utilizing like yoga crossfit hyperbaric chambers they've yeah. done research for and so it's like now you actually have to show from a Medicaid perspective that you are meeting physical as well as mental health and relaxation is like becoming more of a norm, which is great to see. Super great to see and hear because that gives me hope that we're not leaning so heavy yeah. on the just take this pill and feel better that no. there is a holistic approach that's being given validity to as well. Yeah. And being yeah, we just yeah, paid out for, which is like, yeah, you know, it, it's That's, a it's a total bummer that the insurance company decides what treatment is, you know, because that's what oh. they pay for. So in terms, whatever yeah. they're willing to pay for is what these people have to try and meet. Right. You know, yep. um, and then you have to try and run as a right. as a facility. Right. Right. right? Yeah. From like how to actually use the payment to, to make your yeah. your facility run. I mean, there's so many different challenges. Yeah, and we definitely get paid less than a lot of others because we're not just yeah. medicating people. They're like, if you just give them yeah. some pills, we could, you could bill for that. And it's like, well, that's yeah. not really what we're trying to do. Uh, and obviously, so we're not the most profitable based on just those reasons, but you know. But you guys, do you track your outcomes? Yes. Yeah, then you should go back and negotiate and yes. show them your outcomes. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, we've definitely like, done that. We'll keep trying to do that. But, you know, yeah. go try to talk to, you know, Blue yeah. Cross. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, I'm about to. I know. Yeah. Well, and we've tried <laughs> to prove, you know, like, look at, you know, here's our recidivism rate. Here's how little we've taxed the system after they graduate. We've definitely put together those uh, reports to sort of at least get a higher payer, you know, contract for the next year, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, God. It's a whole. Yeah, it's, yeah, and then it's a whole thing, right? It's like, why would you I not know. care about those numbers? You know, it's yeah, like, they don't. Well, and it's and the length of stay that's yeah, the other. Right. I mean, that is like you guys, one of you said it. It's like, yeah, two days in, like yep. in what world, like we authorize payment for people who break their, their legs and can go for rehabilitation for six weeks, yeah, right? and we're gonna authorize two days for someone who's to just trying to kill their brain over yeah yeah well and here's the other part of that besides them dropping levels of care so quickly and us having to like fight how bad they're doing so that they'll pay is if someone let's say they're coming straight out of jail and they're like i am afraid to use i need a program jail yep. didn't do anything for me if they have insurance we're like sorry you've been sober 30 days we can't insurance won't pay for yeah. you to be here so it's like you yeah. literally the person has to be using in order for insurance to say, okay, fine, we'll pay for it. Yeah. They can't do it as a proactive, like preventative measure. It's got to be like, you've got to be really bad before we'll even consider it. Yeah. We're seeing one of the things that we have been facing and there's like a lot of legislation, but it's like, again, there's no, is like the homelessness too. So there's a lot of studies that are starting to come out 
that show like youth exiting systems of care become homeless and like at a quicker rate in that post 12 months. Well, it's like, yeah, because they go back to homes that are incredibly toxic, Mm -hmm. but insurance companies does not see homelessness as a medical necessity. And then there's no housing programs. Yeah. That's that's the other thing. I, I mean, I know we have, but I'm a big proponent of of sober livings, but like regulated sober livings. Right. Real and ones, I yeah. would plot, oh yeah, because again, not just your whole, buddies sober living. <laughs> which happens all the time. Yeah. If we can also, you know, talk you know, Put anybody who's got that, like yeah. A year sober opens up houses and it's like a a horror story of what's happening in unregulated sober housing in this country. Yeah. Well, there is no regulation, really. I know. There's no No. rules. You can do whatever you want. It's your house and people pay you to live there and you make up your own rules. And I know it's it's a great business model. People relapse and keep the money and you put somebody else in. we could get some like payment to actually look at long-term recovery yeah. and have like structured programs that aren't run by Johnny who has a year sober. Right. And is then. Yeah. Some real transitional uh, housing and job placement yeah. and job skills training. Like that yeah. would be amazing. And you're right. If we could get yeah. insurance to pay for that, there would be yeah. a lot more success in long-term sobriety for sure. Totally. Well, yeah, even and then the, the government, or I'm sorry, maybe not the government, but even like the halfway houses that like people coming out of jails and prisons are sent to, are even those are even screwed up. You know, there's 40 Horrible. people in a freaking room. tiny room. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's 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 nuts to hear about. Like the transitional living piece is like really the ball is like really being dropped. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's I I'm like a, talk about obsession. It's my one of my obsessions right now. And it's is, such a hard fix, right? Yeah. So you're yeah. actually going to the insurance companies, or you're going to the state. What are you doing, and how are you doing it? So <laughs> I'm. Here comes I'm, the positive. <laughs> I'm trying to work on the healthcare authority. And who oversees has like Washington's different. Everybody's different, right? And so again, we work more with Medicaid. But I feel like if we can get the healthcare authority, because Medicaid in Washington they are part private and part government funded, so they get both. Right. Uh, and so the healthcare authority though oversees the Medicaid part funds, and so we're trying to look at showing how okay nobody wants kids to be homeless right and young adults but we have no housing so there's different initiatives and laws going on right now because i do a lot of like political advocating and so trying to get the state to pay and commerce to pay for funds for housing Mm -hmm. and we're really close i'm actually about to roll out a program um that is the first of its kind in washington state that does have a transitional living component to it and so I've just been in a lot of negotiations and talks with different MCO payouts that could be integrated into it. And I've made some really good progress. The next step is looking at some of the commercial payers. So I think this program, it's a pilot program. I have the funding for three years. But again, if I can show the outcomes and the measurements, I think it will be kind of that ticket to the larger vision that I've had, which is actual transitional living. And especially for that young, the youth and then the young adult age for mm-hmm. that transitional and embedding school and vocational mm-hmm. training 
into it. And then, I mean, really, it's like, I think part of the way we could fund it is PHPs too, from the private insurance side. If they don't want to do full like case agreements on single day, it's like having more intensive outpatient as part of that payment structure. And then in Washington state, there's a big movement on the peer, peer support programs. And so you can actually bill for peer support Oh wow! now. And like people actually get certified through the state wow. and you can bill with them through commercial plans too. So that's where like from a staffing ratio, if we could have it run through peer support specialists and then you have PHP and you get the state and Medicaid funds, I think I could actually pull it off. Wow. Um, so I'm starting with this first pilot program, but it's just a nightmare with COVID mm. and staffing and the multitude of outbreaks we've had, you know, I mean, it's just the day-to-day operations, but we're working through it. (laughs) Yeah. Just to throw a few more wrenches into everything. Let's throw COVID in there on top of it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, what I can say is it's super uh, like uplifting. It's a bright spot to hear that people are out there in the world doing, doing things that, that you're doing, you know, especially being in the treatment setting and, just bumping into these issues left and right. And I know, you know, we're not the only ones experiencing these things. So it's, it's just like a a very uplifting feeling to know there's people out there fighting for uh, like real change, you know, from like a systemic level. So yeah, kudos to you, Sarah. That's super awesome. You're doing those things. Yeah. Well, I feel the same way about you. I mean, I looked at before I even agreed, you know, at what your program was, like what your services are. And I love the philosophy and it just looks awesome and actually caring. Right. And yeah. like creating, I mean, the fact that I know your payments are less, but that you're still going to provide and keep the integrity to what you guys find to be the best outcomes. Like I think that's, that's the key for all of us. Cause it's so easy to give in when you're in a system yeah because it's just like yeah. one fight after the other but maintaining that integrity is huge yeah well thank you for acknowledging that because it is it's our biggest you know uh problem with investors or otherwise because you know they're like yeah. okay insurance quit paying kick them out oh you only need like two staff to do that you don't need your 20 staff to handle that and so you yeah. know it affects the levels of care and the amount of care that you can give people and how they're oh. going to do it and it's vital to keep your integrity you know not sell your yeah. soul to appease insurance companies yep. and agencies and that's really hard to do because they're like holding your survival yeah. over their head yeah. and that's how you have to run it's like ultimately a business i mean you have to make the income to provide the services and to provide good quality services mm. yeah we're part of what i also do is raise like copious amounts of money because we are a nonprofit. And so we do have that element, which does help bring in that other financial service. Cause I mean, without that, we wouldn't be able to do any of the more substantive stuff that we do do. So that has been a big part of it. That's awesome. Is now, is this your nonprofit? Do you run this or? No, I mean, I do all of the funding. It's the company's nonprofit, but awesome. I mean, it is something. So it's like some, that's how I've been able to do some, like more of our innovative programming. So I created something called the life enrichment program, like four or five years ago, which is nobody will pay for these services. And it's probably a lot of what you guys are providing, right. but we provide like equine therapy, boxing, yoga, trauma-informed yeah. meditation, Broadway. I mean, literally like we partner with 50 different local community agencies and offerings. And that's now become like a robust recreation. It's a hundred percent 
donation based and grant based because the payers won't pay. But now, I mean, now I have the state is actually starting to look at outcomes and having conversations about possibly paying for some of these services. So that that's where, I mean, there's always a solution. I feel like that's my job. Like, honestly, my job is like fixing problems (laughs) and finding the money (laughs) to fix the problems. But there's, there is a solution to every uh, issue. Dang. That makes you incredibly valuable on both fronts because uh, neither of those are easy at all. So that's amazing Mm -hmm. that you're out there doing that. I'm, I'm very appreciative of that for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a, and my brain is just reeling and spinning and just all, you know, it's like, you know, I think like, but like the people that work at Elevate, all my friends in treatment, like we always talk about these things and they always just kind of feel so vast and large to solve, you know? Oh, it's, it's just understand how it's, uh, and that's why, like, even with follow the poppy, that's why you don't, I'm extremely intentional. So even like my vision with follow the poppy, like I always want to do system level work, which is why I haven't given it as much attention because I'm really busy uh, on top of having a child. But if you can figure out the system and this is what I do, right. Then you figure out avenues to work within it to change it. Mm -hmm. But it's like, and that's how I do it. I take a very like system level approach. And so that's kind of, my plan for follow the poppy too is to do some of that more system level do some consulting do some programmatic funding because there, i mean there it exists it's amazing what i've been able to see happen over the last couple of years um so there's just lots of ideas and lots of avenues and like even just what you guys are doing like it's different which is hard but it's also good i know yeah right it's good and hard but it, yeah, you know, but someone's got to do it, you someone's know, because if we're it. not doing it, who is? And then, you know, yep. everything is the same. And then people don't want help because all the help is the same. All the help is exactly yep. you're going to be approved this many days and you're going to go to meetings. You're going to be put on this medication. And there's where people lose hope for help because that's all they think is out there. Well, when they've done it seven times. Yeah. Yeah. Not, you know what I mean? I mean, the recidivism rate is like, you know, and then that's part of the process. Like that's normal, but it's also like, okay, if, if you've done something seven times, let's look at what's not working. Right. Right. Like what, what needs to change? Right. It's like the definition of insanity, you know, doing the same thing oh. over and over again. And you're expecting somehow it's going to have a different result. I mean, yeah, we hope exactly. that's the case, especially with people trying to get sober. But at the same time, you can see where they, yep. they give up because they think, I mean, I've tried this seven times. It's not obviously working. So yeah. Forget yeah. It. I mean, people lose hope. I, that's one of the things I hear over and over again. I think that's like part of our job. It's like, especially those of us who have, but it's keeping hope alive. It's like, whether that's individual or the system, like we have to keep the hope alive to change it. Otherwise it, then it does become bleak and it does become like the day to day and things don't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I mean, I think like my mm-hmm. ultimate vision not like personally but what i would love to see is that you know there there is some sort of like agency that like knows all the treatment centers and what they specialize and what their success rate is and like where their value points are at and they just kind of 
collect people and send them to like the most perfect match, you know, kind yeah. of like if I was to call my doctor and say, Hey, I need a heart doctor. They would know eight heart doctors in the area that kick ass and work on hearts successfully, you know, and then put people in those places. Oh, you're right. And honestly, we need a behavioral health association Yes, because it's like hospitals, long-term care. How do you think they have the money? They have behavioral, they have like physical health associations and they lobby and they set policy and they dictate their payment. I mean, what hospitals are paid versus providing health versus what we're all paid. The disparity is huge, but they're vocal. And I feel like that is something that as a system, we need more of yeah. is that like united front of an association to really make sure that systematic change happens. But I worked on a project actually kind of similar to what you were saying um, with one of our local community accountable health. It's, it's a little bit complicated, but anyways, they had funds. And so we created something called capacity connect. And it was local, but I had that same vision that you were saying, this was per, for providers, yeah. especially with COVID, to be able to have a database of any organization that's locally that has beds opening and to know like what their services are and what insurance they take. Mm -hmm. And so we ran different test groups, but I kept saying like, we're using this for the wrong user. Like it really does need to be for that consumer. Right. Like it hundred percent needs to be for somebody. Cause also like how, I mean, and you guys, how many people... You, a lot of the people seeking help are like the parents or the loved ones mm -hmm. and they don't know a lot and they get taken advantage of, or they just blindly go with the first place that might not be great. Right. You know, and so I just think there needs to be a lot more services in that area. Oh, a hundred percent. It shouldn't be a huge mystery. You know, it shouldn't be like oh. every person should know like, hey, there's this treatment center in Watsonville called Elevated Addiction Services, and 50% of the people that go there stay sober. Like, everyone yep. should know that, you know? Yep. Like, yep. people should know that, yep. <laughs> but no one does, you yep. know? It's like, and that's for everybody, too, in Southern oh, California and Florida and Washington. Like, everyone should know their local yep. treatment center that, like, kicks ass and is, like, actually yep. helping people, you know, it shouldn't yep. it should be like, where's McDonald's? Everyone knows where McDonald's is. Yep. Where's the closest McDonald's? Yeah. And there should be funding. <laughs> there should be funding. That's, that would be nice too. <laughs> but you know, if you Google, I think drug rehab is in the top 10 highest pay per click uh, on Google. So like, if you don't have this tremendous budget um, as a rehab to compete oh. with like the big places like Acadia and stuff like that, you will never even be seen. Like yeah. Dallas is saying, you'll never even be seen because even, you just disappear. You can't even get, you can't even begin to advertise. Right. How, do you guys even know that process? Oh yeah. The whole, um, yes. Script? Yes. We, we, oh. we go through legit script every single year. Yeah. Yep. I mean, even just getting, no, it's yeah, it's, but see, okay. So it, as a nonprofit, there's ad budgets, right? Anyway, but, well, but again, if your budget isn't, uh, in the range of a hundred grand a week, you're never going to be seen on the first two pages, no matter how and big your ad have the money to do that. And that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, it's weird. You know, the more we talk, you see how much is stacked against us. It's like, well, we got the insurance companies, we got the drug companies, we got the uh, Google, like, they're literally all trying to, like, prevent us from helping people to the best of our ability. No, you guys are doing great. I got to turn Angie's mic down. I got excited. I'm sorry, Tom. I mean, you're still here. You're providing fans. I wouldn't have come on your podcast, like, truthfully. Like, I'm, I really don't like most treatment centers yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i write you know it's not even i don't like them i just think people get too stuck in the day today and i like that you guys still have that hope and are trying to do things different and have that integrity behind what you're doing you know i mean i think that is the biggest piece and it's like aligned on a personal belief with like how i also got sober and i'm doing the things i'm doing today it's like very similar to what you guys are teaching people to do yeah absolutely Um, so that's why I was interested in coming on and talking with you guys. Well, we're really glad you have because we do have a lot in common and you have so much wealth of information uh, statistically and otherwise that I think is extremely beneficial just for your average person to know so they know what's going on out there. And obviously yeah. mainstream media is not going to talk about this stuff very much. It's not like the hottest thing out there and there's no benefit for them to even talk about it. So I'm really glad you're here to talk about it. Yeah. And you have to, you just have to be an advocate either for yourself or for your loved ones. And a lot of the time I think it's being an advocate for your loved ones, you know, and that's where I think education is so important. Um, it, cause people don't know. Yeah, no, that's super true. And I think, you know, um, as elevate and probably a lot of what you're doing too, is like, I think steering away from Google and starting to use a lot more of like YouTube and social media, to like highlight, you know, where we can like speak freely and share freely and all that stuff is like a huge thing for treatment centers and getting the word out and getting the buzz out and just like documenting services, you know, to like reach people in a far cheaper route, you know? So I really like the podcast Avenue and the YouTube Avenue and all that stuff to kind of just put it out there for free and hopefully it finds people, you know? Yeah, I think that is the way. I think that's exactly right. I think that is part of, of of a survival tactic. And it's true, like you get to control the narrative and have it come off exactly how you want. That's why even, you know, I'm like slowly with follow the poppy because I, I need it to be intentional. Yeah. Like I haven't even, it's not even long. You know I mean? It's like in the pre-pre-stages, but that's how I'm going to utilize it too. And bringing people back to the website, which is still being developed and worked on for resources, you know, and being able to control your own narrative. Um, you know, I think that is the way and yeah, not paying a high, cause honestly, it's like, if we took that money that people pay on advertising and put it towards like funding people's treatment to actually stay longer. Hello. <laughs> yeah. It would solve yeah. all the problems <laughs> or, or paying to like, be able to have like, you know, mental health therapists that are trained in EMDR. I, I, I mean, there's just, there's so many other places that I think we could use those funds to actually help people. Yep. I agree. I agree. Well, I think this is where it starts. It's sort of a grass root, grassroots movement where, you know, yeah. we can just keep trying to organically reach more people and and get more people on board and really change the narrative of what's happening in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Because people need it. And I mean, it's just, it's just going to keep getting worse. I mean, it's just it, that the projections that I'm hearing 
from like a mental health perspective are, I mean, it's just horrifying. You know, I've, I've worked with and sit on committees with like disaster response psychologists and, you know, they do briefings. And I remember when it was Delta, they were like, if there's another, it was still alpha or whatever it was. And then Delta, they were saying, if there's a second variant, it it's like an 18 month reconstruction period from each variant Mm -hmm. and that like collectively their studies with disasters like this which there's never been a longer disaster in our type our time frame but like people's cortisol their stress hormones you know more people are turning to alcohol and to drugs i mean and we're seeing it right we're seeing we had more people die ever recorded in the history of the united states over a hundred thousand people died from drugs yep then that's just from drugs. That's not even counting alcohol or suicide or cigarettes or suicide. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, your guys' services, like everybody needs to do everything we can to help people right now because it's just going to get worse. Yep. Agreed. And we're seeing it, you know, even just on the people coming in, they're worse than the people that were coming in a yep. couple of years ago. Mentally, uh, it's a struggle. <laughs> yeah. No, the acuity is like, a whole different we're we're seeing it too and our staff i mean i think that's the other thing like the burnout like just the the burnout is just huge right now just individual just the day-to-day grind yeah the ability to cope the capacity to deal with normal normal even as a healthy i mean i'm exhausted yeah yeah (laughs) you also have a baby so you kind of have a like a little excuse there i'm like i'm I'm exhausted (laughs) on so many friends yeah that's a different level that's a totally excusable even uh, 10 years ago would have been acceptable (laughs) thank you so much for coming on where can our listeners find you uh, what would be yeah, the best it, way to reach you? The best way is followthepoppy.com. That's the website or on Instagram, follow the poppy. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Again, I have not been very active, but if you want to follow the journey, those are going to be the avenues to start with. Awesome. And now are you going to slip or do your film in here? Is that going to be part of this? Is is Eventually. Yeah. That's, that, that's one of the goals, not this year, but um yeah that's why it's like it really is an overarching platform to support people who have been affected by opioids and so it will take a couple of different avenues and that's one of the goals is to really actually get it off the ground in the new year there you go well let us know if there's any way we can support you in that i think uh you know we definitely have our experience with the opioids and and treatment and people and life and everything out here in California. So let us know if there's anything we can do to kind of help you with that. Absolutely. No. And I want to stay in contact with you guys too. And just the same goes, you know, with me, I mean, let's just keep, keep brainstorming and keep in contact. I I really love what you guys are doing and I love it even more talking with you guys and, and seeing who you both are. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Likewise. This has been awesome. This has been a nice little treat. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have an amazing day. Go spend some time with your young child and uh, <laughs> battle, battle with your yeah, child get over some sleep. sleep, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Nap time battles. Yeah, fun. <laughs> I will. All right, guys. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. thank you. Yeah, we'll talk soon. All right, bye bye. All right, see you later. All right, guys, that's our show for today. 
hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.